The Three Sailors' Gambit by Lord Dunsany Sitting some years ago in the ancient tavern at Hover, one afternoon in spring, I was waiting, as was my custom, for something strange to happen. In this I was not always disappointed, for the very curious leaded panes of that tavern facing the sea let a light into the low-ceilinged room so mysterious, particularly at evening, that it somehow seemed to affect the events within. Be that as it may, I have seen strange things in that tavern, and heard stranger things told. And as I sat there, three sailors entered the tavern, just back, as they said, from sea, and come with sunburned skins from a very long voyage to the south, and one of them had a board and chessmen under his arm, and they were complaining that they could find no one who knew how to play chess. This was the year that the tournament was in England, and a little dark man at a table in a corner of the room, drinking sugar and water, asked them why they wished to play chess, and they said they would play any man for a pound. They opened their box of chessmen then, a cheap and nasty set, and the man refused to play with such uncouth pieces, and the sailor suggested that perhaps he could find better ones, and in the end he went round to his lodgings nearby and brought his own, and then they sat down to play for a pound a side. It was a consultation game on the part of the sailors. They said that all three must play. Well, the dark little man turned out to be Stavlokratz. Of course, he was fabulously poor, and the sovereign meant more to him than it did to the sailors, but he didn't seem keen to play. It was the sailors that insisted. He had made the badness of the sailors' chessmen an excuse for not playing at all, but the sailors had overruled that, and then he told them straight out who he was, and the sailors had never heard of Stavlokratz. Well, no more was said after that. Stavlokratz said no more, either because he did not wish to boast or because he was huffed that they did not know who he was, and I saw no reason to enlighten the sailors about him. If he took their pound, they had brought it upon themselves, and my boundless admiration for his genius made me feel that he deserved whatever might come his way. He had not asked to play. They had named the stakes. He had warned them and gave them the first move. There was nothing unfair about Stavlokratz. I had never seen Stavlokratz play before, but I had played over nearly every one of his games in the World Championship for the last three or four years. He was always, of course, the model chosen by students. Only young chess players can appreciate my delight at seeing him play firsthand. Well, the sailors used to lower their heads almost as low as the table and mutter together before every move, but they muttered so low that you could not hear what they planned. They lost three pawns almost straight off, then a knight, and shortly after a bishop. They were playing, in fact, the famous Three Sailors' Gambit. Stavlokratz was playing with the easy confidence that they say was usual with him, when suddenly, at about the thirteenth move, I saw him look surprised. He leaned forward and looked at the board, and then at the sailors, but he learned nothing from their vacant faces. He looked back at the board again. He moved more deliberately after that. The sailors lost two more pawns. Stavlokratz had lost nothing as yet. He looked at me, I thought, almost irritably, as though something would happen that he wished I was not there to see. I believed at first that he had qualms about taking the sailor's pound, until it dawned on me that he might lose the game. I saw that possibility in his face, not on the board, for the game had become almost incomprehensible to me. I cannot describe my astonishment. And a few moves later, Stavlokratz resigned. The sailors showed no more elation than if they had won some game with greasy cards playing amongst themselves. Stavlokratz asked them where they got their opening. "'We kind of thought of it,' said one. "'It just kind of came into our heads like,' said another. He asked them questions about the ports they had touched at. He evidently thought, as I did myself, that they had learned their extraordinary gambit, perhaps in some old dependency of Spain, from some young master of chess whose fame had not yet reached Europe. 
He was very eager to find out who this man could be, for neither of us imagined that those sailors had invented it, nor would anyone who had seen them. But he got no information from the sailors. Stavlokratz could very ill afford the loss of a pound. He offered to play them again for the same stakes. The sailors began to set up the white pieces. Stavlokratz pointed out that it was his turn for the first move. The sailors agreed, but continued to set up the white pieces, and sat with the white before them, waiting for him to move. It was a trivial incident, but it revealed to Stavlokratz and myself that none of these sailors were aware that white always moves first. Stavlokratz played them on his own opening, reasoning, of course, that, as they had never heard of Stavlokratz, they would not know of his opening, and with probably a very good hope of getting back his pound, he played the fifth variation with its tricky seventh move, at least so he intended, but it turned to a variation unknown to the students of Stavlokratz. Throughout this game, I watched the sailors closely, and I became sure, as only an attentive watcher can be, that the one on their left, Jim Bunyan, did not even know the moves. When I had made up my mind about this, I watched only the other two, Adam Bailey and Bill Sloggs, trying to make out which was the mastermind, and for a long while I could not. And then I heard Adam Bailey mutter six words, the only words I heard throughout the game of all their consultations. No, oh, him with the horse's head. And I decided that Adam Bailey did not know what a knight was, though of course he might have been explaining things to Bill Sloggs, but it did not sound like that, so that left Bill Sloggs. I watched Bill Sloggs after that with a certain wonder. He was no more intellectual than the others to look at, though rather more forceful, perhaps. Poor old Stavlokratz was beaten again. Well, in the end, I paid for Stavlokratz and tried to get a game with Bill Sloggs alone, but this he would not agree to. It must be all three or none, and then I went back with Stavlokratz to his lodgings. He very kindly gave me a game, and of course it did not last long, but I am prouder of having been beaten by Stavlokratz than of any game that I have ever won. And then we talked for an hour about the sailors, and neither of us could make head or tail of them. I told him what I had noticed about Jim Bunyan and Adam Bailey, and he agreed with me that Bill Sloggs was the man, though as to how he had come by that gambit or that variation of Stavlokratz's own opening, he had no theory. I had the sailors' address, which was that tavern as much as anywhere, and they were to be there all evening. As evening drew in, I went back to the tavern and found there still the three sailors and I offered Bill Sloggs two pounds for a game with him alone, and he refused, but in the end he played me for a drink. And then I found that he had not heard of the en passant rule, and believed that the fact of checking the king prevented him from castling, and did not know that a player can have two or more queens on the board at the same time, if he queens his pawn, or that a pawn could ever become a knight, and he made as many of the stock mistakes as he had time for in a short game, which I won. I thought that I should have got it the secret then, but his mates, who had sat scowling all the while in the corner, came up and interfered. It was a breach of their compact, apparently, for one to play by himself. At any rate, they seemed angry. So I left the tavern then, and came back again next day, and the next day, and the day after, and often saw the sailors, but none were in a communicative mood. I had got Stavlokratz to keep away, and they could get no one to play chess with at a pound aside, and I would not play with them unless they told me the secret. And then one evening, I found Jim Bunyan drunk, yet not so drunk as he wished, for the two pounds were spent, and I gave him very nearly a tumbler of whiskey, or what passed for whiskey in that tavern at over, and he told me the secret at once. I had given the others some whiskey to keep them quiet, and later on in the evening they must have gone out, but Jim Bunyan stayed with me by a little table, leaning across it and talking low, right into my face, his breath smelling all the while of what passed for whiskey. The wind was blowing outside as it does on bad nights in November, coming up with moans from the south, towards which the tavern faced with all its leaded panes, so that none but I was able to hear his voice as Jim Bunyan gave up his secret. 
They had sailed for years, he told me, with Bill Synth, and on their last voyage home Bill Synth had died, and he was buried at sea. Just the other side of the line they buried him, and his pals divided his kit, and these three got his crystal that only they knew he had, which Bill got one night in Cuba. They played chess with the crystal. And he was going on to tell me about that night in Cuba when Bill had bought the crystal from the stranger, how some folks might think they had seen thunderstorms, but let them go and listen to the one that thundered in Cuba when Bill was buying his crystal, and they'd find that they didn't know what thunder was. But then I interrupted him, unfortunately, perhaps, for it broke the thread of his tale and set him rambling a while and cursing other people and talking of other lands, China, Port Said, and Spain. But I brought him back to Cuba again in the end. I asked him how they could play chess with a crystal, and he said that you looked at the board and looked at the crystal, and there was the game in the crystal the same as it was on the board with all the odd little pieces looking just the same, though smaller, horses' heads and whatnots, and as soon as the other man moved, the move came out in the crystal, and then your move appeared after it, and all you had to do was make it on the board. If you didn't make the move that you saw on the crystal, things got very bad in it, everything horribly mixed and moving about rapidly and scowling and making the same move over and over again, and the crystal getting cloudier and cloudier. It was best to take one's eyes away from it then, or one dreamt about it afterwards, and the foul little pieces came and cursed you in your sleep, and moved about all night with their crooked moves. I thought then that, drunk though he was, he was not telling the truth, and I promised to show him to people who played chess all their lives, so that he and his mates could get a pound whenever they liked, and I promised not to reveal his secret even to Stavlokrats, if only he would tell me all the truth, and this promise I have kept till long after the three sailors have lost their secret. I told him straight out that I did not believe in the crystal. Well, Jim Bunyan leaned forward then, even further across the table, and swore he had seen the man from whom Bill had bought the crystal, and that he was one to whom anything was possible. To begin with, his hair was villainously dark, and his features were unmistakable, even down there in the south, and he could play chess with his eyes shut, and even then he could beat anyone in Cuba. But there was more than this. There was the bargain he made with Bill that told one who he was. He sold that crystal for Bill Synth's soul. Jim Bunyan, leaning over the table with his breath in my face, nodded his head several times and was silent. I began to question him then. Did they play chess as far away as Cuba? He said they all did. Was it conceivable that any man would make such a bargain as Synth made? Wasn't the trick well known? Wasn't it in hundreds of books? And if he couldn't read books, mustn't he have heard from sailors that it is the devil's commonest dodge to get souls from silly people? Jim Bunyan had leant back in his own chair, quietly smiling at my questions. But when I mentioned silly people, he leaned forward again and thrust his face close to mine and asked me several times if I called Bill Synth silly. It seemed that these three sailors thought a great deal of Bill Synth, and it made Jim Bunyan angry to hear anything said against him. I hastened to say that the bargain seemed silly, though not, of course, the man who made it, for the sailor was almost threatening, and no wonder for the whiskey in that dim tavern would madden a nun. When I said that the bargain seemed silly, he smiled again, and then he thundered his fist down on the table and said that no one had ever yet got the best of Bill Synth, and that that was the worst bargain for himself that the devil had ever made, and that from all he had read or heard of the devil, he had never been so badly had before as the night when he met Bill Synth at the inn of the thunderstorm in Cuba, for Bill Synth already had the damnedest soul at sea. Bill was a good fellow, but his soul was damned right enough, so he got the crystal for nothing. Yes, he was there and saw it all himself. Bill Synth and the Spanish inn and the candles flaring and the devil walking in and out of the rain— and then the bargain between those two old hands, and the devil going on out into the lightning, and the thunderstorm raging on, and Bill Synth sitting, chuckling to himself between the bursts of the thunder. 
but I had more questions to ask, and interrupted this reminiscence. Why do they all three always play together? And a look of something like fear came over Jim Bunyan's face, and at first he would not speak. And then he said to me that it was like this. They had not paid for that crystal, but got it as their share of Bill Synth's kit. If they had paid for it, or given something in exchange to Bill Synth, that would have been all right. But they couldn't do that now, because Bill was dead, and they were not sure if the old bargain might not hold good. And hell must be a large and lonely place, and to go there alone must be bad. And so the three agreed that they would all stick together, and use the crystal all three, or not at all. Unless one died, and then the two would use it, and the one that was gone would wait for them. And the last of the three to go would take the crystal with him, or maybe the crystal would bring him. They didn't think they said they were the kind of men for heaven, and he hoped they knew their place better than that. But they didn't fancy the notion of hell alone, if hell it had to be. It was all right for Bill Synth, he was afraid of nothing. He had known perhaps five men that were not afraid of death, but Bill Synth was not afraid of hell. He died with a smile on his face like a child in its sleep. It was drink killed poor Bill Synth. This was why I had beaten Bill Sloggs. Sloggs had the crystal on him while he played, but he would not use it. These sailors seemed to fear loneliness as some people fear being hurt. He was the only one of the three who could play chess at all. He had learnt it in order to be able to answer questions and keep up their pretense, but he had learnt it badly, as I found. I never saw the crystal. They never showed it to anyone. But Jim Bunyan told me that night that it was about the size that the thick end of a hen's egg would be if it were round. And then he fell asleep. There were many more questions that I would have asked him, but I could not wake him up. I even pulled the table away so that he fell to the floor, but he slept on, and all the tavern was dark but for one candle burning, and it was then that I noticed for the first time that the other two sailors had gone. No one remained at all but Jim Bunyan and I, and the sinister barman of that curious inn, and he too was asleep. When I saw that it was impossible to wake the sailor, I went out into the night. Next day, Jim Bunyan would talk of it no more, and when I went back to Stavlokratz, I found him already putting on paper his theory about the sailors, which became accepted by chess players, that one of them had been taught their curious gambit, and that the other two between them had learnt all the defensive openings as well as general play. Though who taught them no one could say, in spite of enquiries made afterwards all along the southern Pacific. I never learnt any more details from any of the three sailors. They were always too drunk to speak, or else not drunk enough to be communicative. I seemed to have taken Jim Bunyan just at the flood, but I kept my promise. It was I that introduced them to the tournament, and a pretty mess they made of established reputations. And so they kept on for months, never losing a game and always playing for their pound aside. I used to follow them wherever they went, merely to watch their play. They were more marvelous than Stavlokrats, even in his youth. But then they took to liberty such as giving their queen when playing first-class players, and in the end one day, when all three were drunk, they played the best player in England with only a row of pawns. They won the game, all right. But the ball broke to pieces. I never smelt such a stench in all my life. The three sailors took it stoically enough. They signed on to different ships and went back again to the sea, and the world of chess lost sight forever, I trust, of the most remarkable players it ever knew who would have altogether spoiled the game.